Okay, if I could get you gathered here together. For those that are in their seats and listening, there will be ice cream for you. No, just kidding. Lie. Total lie. I was being shrewd. <laughs> You'll see why that's important in a little bit. Hey, uh, my name is Steve Treichler. I don't know everybody in the room. Some of you uh, helped start this location, and perhaps you know me from you are part of what now we're calling the downtown uh, location of Hope Community Church. Before then, it was just called Hope Community Church, you know. And so, but uh, I was the uh, founding pastor of that church in 1996, which now seems like a long time ago because it because it was. But um, and anyway, so now I'm still involved as a senior pastor of all the locations, which but I'm not the lead pastor of any, which means basically I'm the arm and eye candy of the organization. And so <laughs> anyway, uh, so we're really glad you're here, especially if this is your first time uh, at Columbia Heights, the Hope Community Church Summer Edition. We love summer. I used to, man, when we, were, when we started the church, we were right on the campus at the University of Minnesota and loved summers because we were 75% college students and it was great. We could just kind of hold hands and sing Kumbaya. And I mean, it was just, everybody called for lunch afterwards. It was great. So uh, enjoy this because that changes over time. So uh, uh, I am uh, clicking through, there we go. We're in a series as all the locations are doing this summer. And that's not always the case. Sometimes the locations do different different um, uh, passages or different themes or whatever. They don't have to. We kind of, the rest of the year, we try to follow each other. And when we get back into Romans in this fall, but this summer, we've decided to take a little bit of time and look at some of the accounts of Jesus, many of them parables. Today's is a parable and take a look at them and, uh, uh, and dialogue about what is this? There's power in story in Jesus telling story and, and the stories of Jesus that aren't just another story. It's actually something that's really impacts us deeply. And this week, we're going to be doing the parable of the dishonest manager. So um, truth be told, I, uh, this parable of dishonest manager, I looked at it. Uh, Drew had asked me to come and, and speak a couple times this summer. So I think I'm again in somewhere in August or something like that. And you know, when you've, when you've been doing this a while, <laughs> you just don't even bother to look at the passage. You just kind of like, yeah, sure, fine. I'll get to it later, whatever. Parable of dishonest manager, sure, fine, whatever. And so... Uh, I read. I, I really went back and read it for the first time last Sunday, actually, because our downtown location, Pastor Cor Shemaleski, wasn't preaching that week, and he was studying this passage because he was going to be on vacation, and he was like literally like banging his head against the desk, and I'm like, "What's wrong?" He goes, "Oh man, what is going on here?" And and it's like, "What?" So I started looking at it. I went, "Oh my gosh, what is going on here?" And I'm like, this is summer. We're not supposed to do hard stuff in the summer. What is the deal here? This is supposed to be, you know, like the, the, the odd numbered things. Their answers are in the back of the book kind of deal. So, so I just for kicks Googled, and you can do this, and you probably will because you have your phone on you right here. Jesus' hardest parable, without a doubt. Everybody comes up and says, without a doubt, this is it. This is the, the hardest one. This is the one that's most difficult to understand. Uh, this guy even says uh, one of the most notoriously difficult parables to interpret, let alone preach and teach, is the parable of the unjust steward or dishonest manager. Manners how you read it in Luke 16, 1 to 30. It is a parable that is rarely found in the pulpit, and it has a dizzying history of interpretation from scholars dating back to the early church. So, so I thought, well, let's, I'll just go look at what other people have preached on this. And it's fascinating. 
Like Tim Keller, thought, great. I'm going to look at when Tim Keller preached through Luke. He skips this. <laughs> oh, okay. Like that was, a, it's a common thing. People are like, I don't, I don't know. I'm just going to keep moving here. Just keep nothing to see here. Keep moving, right? It's like, oh my goodness, right? And so uh, I probably have spent more time looking at what other people think about this. I probably have read or skim read at least 12 commentaries, pretty much none of which disagree with each other. Uh, This morning even, I'm just like, what did Luther and Calvin think about this? And they don't agree with each other and they're all over the map. So (laughs) that's great to be here. So um, we are gonna get after what people have called the hardest parable in the Bible. Uh, Robert Capon, he's got, I think, a very good book on parables. Again, sometimes you agree with them, sometimes you don't. Um, but I think he's got really good things to say here. He says, the parable of the unjust steward may well be the most difficult of all the parables of Jesus. This story in which a business manager's crooked attempts to feather his bed after having been fired are first held up for admiration and then made the occasion of obviously critical comments probably spooks more interpreters and do more false starts than any other. Let me list just a few of the devices, desperate and otherwise, that suggest themselves to me as I confront the parables built in contradictions. But basically what he's saying here is, let me rip on what some people have said to try and explain this. And the explanations are wackadoodle. Like some say things like, you know what? Jesus never said this one. Why? Because I don't understand it. So Jesus couldn't have said it. Somebody else said, you know what? Luke did a great job of writing Luke chapter 15, you know, the parable of the, the lost uh, uh, sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost uh, uh, sons, you know, it's beautiful. And then he, he, re- he kind of, he has all these three by five cards of other things he's supposed to talk about. And he's got, oh yeah, there's this parable. And here's a bunch of miscellaneous teachings. I'll just put them here. That's what <laughs> some people say Luke did. And I don't buy that. But at the same time, it's, It's attractive because it kind of seems that way. So with that said, let's get after it. We're going to read it and uh, we'll kind of walk through it. If you don't mind, maybe you guys don't do this here, but that's okay. We'll start something new. Why don't we all read it together? Uh, If you don't mind standing and and reading it with me, if that's okay. Everywhere there's a punctuation, uh, we will, or like a comma or a period or a colon, we will just pause for a second. So here we go. Luke 16, it's going to go one to verse, I think we're going all the way to verse 15. So Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So we called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master 
commended the dishonest manager basically because he'd acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Okay, you're going to have a seat. So are there any questions about this passage at all? Are we good? Uh, everything fine? There we go. <laughs> uh, there's treats in the back. Have a nice day. You know, I mean, this is, diff this is a difficult passage. <laughs> there's no doubt about it. And oftentimes I get really excited when I see difficult passages because that's when you dig in and you read what scholars and people over the centuries have thought about this. And you're like, oh yeah, yeah. There's that little hidden piece of like historical thing that we're, you know, we don't see and, and some of those things and it all becomes clear. <clears throat> Not so much today. So this is, this is one of the most unique uh, things I've ever done. Like I don't know what this actually means. Okay. So you're like, what? Can we get someone who does? No. The other locations don't know either. I've talked to them. Uh, I've talked to many people. Like I say, people skip this. However, what I want to do is this. I think there's really great principles here. And I'm actually going to do something really strange. So uh, I'm going to show you how different people have seen the parable would say, this is what it is. And I'm actually not going to disagree with that, even though there are multiple possibilities. Okay. And you're like, what? It's like, yeah, I know. It, it, they kind of have, they seem to kind of work, but then they don't work. Every one of them kind of works, but doesn't really work. But there's probably principles there that, that Jesus maybe was trying to teach. I'm not totally convinced that the point of this parable was, if anybody Arsenio Hall fans here back in the day, things that make you go, hmm, remember you used to do that? I mean, whatever, just things that make you think. And I think this parable is out there to stir you into kind of thinking, but I'm not, there's not a neat answer. And it, it, the bummer is it comes after Luke 15, which is like the most clear. It's clear who Jesus is. It's clear who we are. It's clear who the Pharisees are. I mean, it's just clear. And all of a sudden it's like, wow, not clear. But I think there's still some clear principles we can pull out of this, even if the parable doesn't make sense. One of the things I kept saying, we do a Monday morning uh, call with uh, just a Zoom call with everybody who's communicating these passages at the, all the locations and some other staff join us. So there's about, I don't know, six, seven people on this call. And I kept saying this phrase over and over. I have no problem with the teachings that Jesus is doing and I have no problem with the parable, but they don't go together at all. Other than that, I'm fine with this passage. So that's, they, they do kind of go together. <laughs> 
give, give me a little sympathy smile here a little bit. I, I, this is not for lack of like trying. This is a lot of effort has been put into this. So here's what I want to do. I kind of want to go under the water for each little section and kind of look at the passage and then where it's murky and then come up and say for air and then say, there, here's kind of the, some of the things going on. So let's go back through the parable. That's what we're going to do. And then we'll make some comments about it and how it relates to us. So first part of the parable, very clear, right? Can't be clear. It says, Jesus told the disciples. So we'll see this in just a minute. This follows Luke chapter 15. And uh, Luke chapter 15, we'll come, we'll come to this in just a minute. But Luke, Luke chapter 15 happens because Jesus is hanging out with sinners and the Pharisees are ripping on him. So he tells a parable. All right. Now what happens in Luke 15, it seems, is that Jesus now kind of turns from talking to this crowd of people to just speaking to his disciples, but everybody else is listening. We'll see that by the end. Okay. So he told his disciples, and here's this parable. There's a rich man. He had a manager. The manager is wasting his possessions. Okay. Pretty straightforward. So he called him in and said, what's this I hear about you? Give account because you're not going to be a manager any longer. You're fired. Okay. But you're fired. It's not, it's not at this moment he doesn't get fired because you're going to see that the manager still has some, like he's been given a, a week notice or something, okay? That seems pretty straightforward. Uh, who Jesus is actually talking about here, I don't know yet, and we'll talk about that. But uh, as far as like the parable goes, that seems very straightforward, right? There you go. Second part. The manager says to himself, so he, even though the, the, he must have walked away in the story, he must have walked away from the guy who just fired him, and he, and he says to himself, okay, I'm in trouble here, right? I'm just going to lose my job. So what am I going to do? I can't dig ditches. I'm not strong enough. So he's got like a, he's like a CPA. No, no, no offense if you're a CPA type, but normally not, you know, the buffest, whatever. So anyway, the, the, he can't do that. And he says... <laughs> And somehow the only other option is to beg. So digging or begging, and he doesn't want to do either. With him. He doesn't, I'm a too proud. I, I am ashamed to do that. So I'm not going to do that. I got an idea. I'm gonna, I've got the idea. And so the idea is that I'm going to pull something off here so that, and the idea is when I do lose my job, I'll have friends in high places. That's the point, right? This is an economic decision. I need to be helped. I'm not going to get in trouble right? That's what he's trying to do. And, and people will welcome me into their houses. I'll have friends, right? Again, as far as the story goes, fall on track and along. Next part of the story. So he called in each one of these people. Now, the first one owes a uh, 900 gallons of olive oil. We were just in Italy and man, their olive oil is, is, is amazing. I'm sure olive oil from the Middle East is very, very good as well. Obviously, they've been doing it for a while, right? And so I'm sure it's really good. But think about that. Nine hundred gallons. Okay, this is not like, you know, hey, if you're going to the Middle East, would you get me a gallon and bring it back or something? This is a huge quantity. So this is uh, like a big business. I don't know how much 900 gallons would actually be, but it's 900. It fit in a 900 gallon vat is how big it is. <clears throat> yeah. So it's a lot, right? It's not a small amount. And he says, you know what? Cut it in half. Whoa. Okay. Next guy comes, how much do you He says, I owe a uh, thousand bushels of wheat. He says, you know what? Cut it by 20%. So he's not just going 50%, not going. Uh, a lot of commentators make, make, they go into this big time saying what he's trying to get after here is 
that extra 20 or that extra 50% might have been the, the, the uh, steward's fee and he was cutting his fee and doing all this. It's a speculation. It could be um, whatever, right? So here, but the fact is that those people owed a certain amount and they weren't going to pay it. And this guy, the, the, he's not doing this saying, you know what? Before I'm out of here, I'm going to do something good for my, for my manager, for my boss. He's not doing that. He's doing it to save his own hide right? So if you follow the story, what you expect to happen is get in the office and the guy to, you know, read him the riot act. That's what you're expecting. That's not what happens. The master commended the dishonest manager. Now that's a twist, right? You don't see that one coming. It's just like, what? He commends him because he'd acted shrewdly. Now this is Jesus talking here. (laughs) Okay. So it's like, wait now, expected, you know, like maybe Judas to say, hey, that was shrewd, man. Way to go. You turned a buck. This is Jesus saying this. So it's like, uh, what's going on here? For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. So in that second sentence there after verse eight, that's the end of the parable. End of the story. Big twist. He commends him for doing it. Okay. I didn't see that one coming. You know, is there a season two? You know, is this a cliffhanger? There's another season coming. We could binge later. I could see what happens. And he's going to explain some principles here. And he says, the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, you've already read this. We already read it together. You're going to see he's going to spend some time talking about money. And that's one of the possibilities of what this, what he's getting after. Other people look at this and say, This whole thing is a parable about Jesus, okay? And this is where Robert Capon goes in his commentary. He says, this is about Jesus. Um, And and the reason for that is he says, Jesus acts shrewdly on our behalf for us, okay? Let me just quote what he says, because I don't fully agree with him, but I think he's got some good things to say. How confusing is that? Yes, it is. So He says this, as far as I'm concerned, therefore, the unjust steward, the dishonest manager, is nothing less than the Christ figure in this parable, a dead ringer for Jesus himself. I love when people say this. It's so clear, dead ringer. Uh, Okay, making a point. First of all, he dies and rises like Jesus. So he kind of died to his old job and he was gonna rise to a new one. Second, by his death and resurrection, he raises others like Jesus But third and most important of all, the unjust steward is the Christ figure because he is a crook like Jesus. Now that will grab your attention. So I kept reading and so should you, right? The unique contribution of this parable to our understanding of Jesus is its insistence that grace cannot come to the world through respectability. Respectability regards only life, success, winning. It will have no truck. Not sure what he means by that, but vehicle, I guess, with the grace that works by death and losing, which is the only kind of grace there is. Jesus became sin for us sinners, weak for us weaklings, lost for us losers, and dead for us dead. St. Augustine said the cross is the devil's mousetrap, baited with Jesus' disreputable death. And it is a mousetrap for us too. Jesus baits us criminals with his own criminality. As the shabby debtors in the parable were willing to deal only with the crooked steward and not with the upright Lord. So we find ourselves drawn by the bait of a Jesus who winks at iniquity and makes friends of sinners of us crooks. That is, 
Uh, and of all the losers who would never in a million years go near a God who knew what was expected of himself and insisted on what he expected of others. So the idea on this understanding of the parable is that Jesus is like this, this manager in that he shrewdly deals with sin by, by kind of a tricky way of going to the cross and paying for our penalty for us, becoming sin, therefore he's a crook. Not because he himself is a, a crook, but he becomes like a crook on our behalf. Okay, it's, I like Jesus a lot. And I like when Jesus is the point of things. And so there's certain things on this that, that make me go, hmm, hmm, right? And, and one of them here is the fact that it's a debt, right? It's the oldest debt. And that's just a common theme in Luke and other places. Like, yeah, this debt gets paid and it, it, there's, there's something there. But I, I don't know if I'm fully there, okay? So <laughs> I'm not fully there in any of these. So anyway, here we go. Uh, second one. Second, who's the dishonest manager? Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if, uh, if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trusted with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No, oh, I, I didn't want 13 there, sorry. Uh, so he's going on here to say, well, wait a minute, are, are we the dishonest manager? Are we like this? Because Jesus says, hey, the people of the world deal more shrewdly than people of the light. So maybe he's speaking to followers of Jesus saying, you need to be like this. This is kind of where Tim Keller lands and his, he finally does come back to it about three years after he preaches through Luke and he does a one-off sermon. But he, he specifically, it was a sermon that he was doing. You can see it down here. It's on, he's just talking about money. And so he's looking for passages about money. So he doesn't have to deal with a whole lot of the parable. He just says, ah, it refers to something, but here's kind of what the thing on money is. Okay. And it says, it is brief, but very hard hitting. Jesus is creating a parable. And the purpose of the parable is supposed to say, you see how this guy within his secular framework is being with his money. So you should be as well. One of the, one of the points he is doing is, He's likening us to a manager of somebody else's money. Now, when you're managing someone else's money, that means you can't just do anything you want with it because it's not your money. So what Jesus is actually saying right out of the gate is he is saying, whoever you are, if you under, understand there's a God, you will know that the money you have is not really yours. Stop acting if it is yours. I heard one of our elders say this, and this is a great way, is you look at kind of the gospel answer to different things that our world struggles with. And he said, if you look at politics, the left would see that all money belongs to the community. The right would say that all money belongs to the individual. But the gospel would say all money belongs to God, and we got to steward it, right? It's a third way. So that it's a different way of looking at it than, say, um, you know, uh, 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 just that it's the community's or it's just ours is my money. It's like, no, it's God's and we are just stewards of it. And how do we do this? Are we acting in a way that is shrewd in a sense that it brings out uh, more and more kingdom advancement? That's very possible. And so then we're kind of like the dishonest manager. Okay, the, the third one, <laughs> I made this one up. So I figure everybody else is making stuff up. I'm gonna make one up too. So... <clears throat> No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What if money is the dishonest manager? I'm not sure I'd, 
buy this, but I thought it's fun to throw another one out there. What if the idea that money is the one that deals shrewdly with us, it doesn't, it doesn't satisfy us. It's, he's saying here there's a distinction between the kingdom that the people that follow after God and follow after Christ and those who just kind of let it all go and hang in there with their money. And so this, this distinction is made there and, and could be that it's that he's just trying to say that what I'm putting at here is this idolatry of money that the whole world wrestles with. America, we wrestle with America, right? So we wrestle with this as well. Like, could this be where he's going with this uh, particular parable? Okay, last one. Last one of the possibilities is that are the Pharisees the dishonest managers, okay? Uh, he says, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. So again, he's speaking, it says in the beginning of this chapter, that he's speaking to the disciples. They're over here. But he's, he's doing one of those, this is at least what would this, whoever the ones that believe this would say, is that he's doing this. I'm talking to you, but I'm really wanting you to hear. Okay? So they're hearing. And he, Jesus knows they're hearing. And they're, when they hear this, they heard all this and they sneer at Jesus. What is it? Nah, nah. I don't, what, is, what is a sneer? What is that? It just seems very childish, but whatever. They're sneering at Jesus, okay? And so Jesus looks then now at them. And you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts and what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. In other words, the things that you are seeking after, it's a different kind of kingdom. There's, there's two kingdoms going on here. And Pharisees, you are not. You're, you're living in the kingdom of religion, in the kingdom of comfort and, and making sure people like you and that kind of thing. The kingdom of Christ is very different. The gospel kingdom, the gospel way is very different. It, it looks to putting everything, all of self and all of possessions and what other people think of me becomes secondary to first and foremost saying Jesus Christ is all in every single way. It says there's two different ways. Now, the, the most powerful, uh, it seems like it has something to do with them because of, if you think of the arc of a story, right? If you, if you just Google the arc of a narrative or the arc of a story or how it works, it seems to me the arc of Luke 16, the same encounters happening with what's going on in Luke 15 and what we just end with. So in Luke 15, it starts off by saying, now the tax collectors and sinners are all gathering around to hear Jesus but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. And he goes on to talk about a person who lost a sheep and the rejoicing that's going to happen in heaven and the person who lost a coin and the rejoicing that's going to happen. And then he really hones down his point and he gives the parable of the lost sons. The one goes off in wild living, Right? The other son is obedient and stays there, but he's angry when there's grace given to the other son. And then, and Jesus is making a real clear point. You are that older brother, Pharisees, right? So he's preaching this story. We often think of the parable of the prodigal son as about the prodigal son, and it is, but that's actually not Jesus' main point. His main point is the second son, and that's who you are, right? And he ends that parable, and he turns to his disciples and he tells them this parable. 
right? And you'd think, you'd think with how much, I do too. I mean, my goodness. We preached Luke 15 a lot. Matter of fact, there was a period of time there where if you asked me to come do a retreat for you, I had three messages from Luke 15. Giddy up. That's what we did. I never once touched Luke 16. Not gonna do, I mean, it's like, yeah, you'd think it would flow. And it, so it seems to me like he's still referring here to some way, shape, or form to the Pharisees, especially because he ends here by redirecting towards the Pharisees who loved money. So now, instead of sneering at these sinners and these, these, uh, these lost people who are there, they're sneering at the fact that Jesus is coming with a different way of looking at money. You can't serve God money. Use your money, not just for yourself, but to actually gain friends and to influence people for the sake of the kingdom. They sneer at that, and that's why they get, it, they get a harsh, harsh rebuke. All right. So, and this is uh, R.C. Sproul, who I highly, highly admire. This is what he thinks. Think again of the parable of the unjust steward. The Pharisees were stewards of the law. So they were supposed to be the ones that held the Old Testament and all that, but they were dishonest and they didn't do it right. But they wasted it by reinterpreting it and so compromised it. Although they were highly esteemed by the people, in God's sight, they were an abomination. This is not Jesus' fullest teaching on, okay, so after this passage, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you're gonna get there next week or not, Jordan, but he's gonna go on, he's gonna give this point about the law still there, and then he goes into this issue of divorce. And it's like shocking, but it's a way to show that the, the Pharisees did not follow the Old Testament law. They kind of made up their own stuff. Uh, these men who claimed to be pillars of the Old Testament were violating that law every day and nowhere more noticeably than in their utter disregard for the Old Testament legislation about marriage. They were quick to grant divorces. Why? Because that is what the people wanted. These men were more concerned to receive the applause of the people than to receive the blessing of God. It's a, it's a real hard passage in there um, just because it, it, it doesn't really go after divorce the same way I think we deal with divorce. Divorce to us is a very sad and it's a very complicated thing. To them, it was, if a man just gets sick of his wife, then I'm out and I'm gonna go get a new one. And the Pharisees were saying, go for it. Great, sounds like a plan. And it's like, wait a minute, what? No way, right? And that's what Jesus is picking on that because he wants to get after them. But he's saying, R.C. Sproul saying, this parable is leaning into the Pharisees, their, their religiosity, their legalism, and that it clouded so that they could not see at all. The son of God is standing right in front of them and they totally miss it. Okay, now the parable, obvious, that's tough, right? And we just, I went through four things and you're going, uh, dude, aren't you supposed to help us? It's like, no, I'm just giving you where I'm at, as confused as you, okay? So, but there are things you can learn from it. One of which is there's some reason when Jesus is bringing this all up, there's some hook between money, possessions, how we use them, what, what they do in our lives, and the gospel. Those two are very connected here, all right? And so let me go to another passage that I think is helpful to let us see like how does the gospel and money fit together? And it goes like this for 1 Timothy 6. So my favorite passage on money. It says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought... Uh, nothing into the world 
and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So you're thinking, just if you listen to this, the Apostle Paul here, not Luke here, but the Apostle Paul, he's kind of saying, it seems to be that that if you want anything more than food and clothing, that's bad. And he's actually not going to say that. He's going to say, though, that if you're looking for riches to be that thing that will satisfy you, then you're in trouble. There's an old saying, and I tried to find it. I can't find it. Uh, I don't remember who said it, but it said, the only advantage there is for being rich is that rich people know for certain that riches don't satisfy, <laughs> uh, right? They don't, they, they really don't. But all of us are like, ah, I think I could be the exception to that rule, right? Uh, I think I could be, I'm, I'm pretty sure nobody else could handle it, but I can handle it. You look at those studies that are done of people that have won the lottery and a high percentage of them wish they'd never won the money. And you're thinking like I'm thinking, I know, but they're kind of a sucker. I think I could do it. Pretty sure I could handle $237 million just dropped into my account. Be great, right? Maybe, maybe not. It actually creates a whole new set of problems. Uh, then he goes on in 1 Timothy 6. I'm skipping to verse 17. And here he's telling this young guy, Timothy, to tell the people of the church that he was doing in Ephesus. He says, command those who are rich to stop being rich and get rid of all their money. And no, he doesn't say that. Doesn't say that. Nothing wrong with being rich. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. That's key. He says, if you're wealthy, praise God you're wealthy. That's a wonderful thing. There's nothing wrong with that. However, don't be arrogant about it. In other words, think that now because I'm wealthy, I'm independent. I am really my own God here. I really can do whatever I want. No. Second, don't put your hope in it. Don't put hope in wealth because it's uncertain, right? Anybody buy into crypto market? Too soon, sorry. The, uh, it's just uncertain, right? It's just up, down, all, all over. But to put your hope in God, and then he says this, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Here's the thing on money and possessions. They're provided for our uh, uh, enjoyment, but they're not meant to be objects of worship. And yes, that sometimes feels like a fine line. You should enjoy things, but not worship them, not hold on to them, not put hope in them. And then he goes on to say, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And he goes into this idea of being generous. And that's what Jesus is talking about too. You know, win friends for yourselves. Use your money this way. I, I uh, <clears throat> read some quotes way back, way back, old school hope, 1999. We did a series called Your Money or Your Life. And I went back for this series and I tried to find anything. And I found, I found some really funny 
uh, but really like crazy quotes. And one of them was <clears throat> that, you know, because uh, I just laid on my cards. I, I don't believe in a New Testament tithe. It's a bad thing to be telling people. Uh, I don't believe that you should give 10% of your money. I think 10% is the way it was in the Old Testament. That was the law. I think the New Testament comes along, and I don't think that's, we're not under that anymore. Uh, and so you're like, hey, score. Uh, well, I, I, I think it's a principle of the Old Testament. Perhaps it's a way to kind of measure your giving. But, but the average uh, churchgoer now, I think, gives 2.5%. And because preachers have gotten a hold of that, what if they, they said, what if God did it the other way? <laughs> what if instead of saying you give, you know, 10%, what if he looks at your giving then makes your income? I thought that was, anyway, that's kind of shaming. But the idea is it's this generosity. Generosity is not our compulsion. Generosity lives in light of the fact that I'm okay in Jesus. He's going to take care of me. And so now I can be generous with my time, talent, treasure, ticker. I can, be, I can be generous with those things because the gospel has so changed me. I'm, I'm flat out okay. I'm putting my hope in Jesus Christ and in nothing else. He's the one who satisfies me and, and not money. But that doesn't mean, oh, then I'm not going to have anything in my retirement account. I'm not, whatever. They're not saying that. He doesn't say that. He says to be generous, willing to share, Right? So there's something about, and Jesus brings us up, you cannot serve God money, but use it in such a way. Use your income in such a way to further the kingdom. Okay, now, I showed you like at least four different ways to look at this parable, picking none, uh, because I think there's elements of all of them. So as we kind of close, I want to ask you, I'm 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 gonna put them down into three, kind of things to think about. Because I think there's principles you can get from this, even if we don't fully one-to-one get the parable to work out just right. So the first thing is, is how does the gospel of Jesus Christ radically change the way we view our indebtedness and our displacement? Remember, the guy was not only worried about not being able to, uh, not being able to make money, but also about he wouldn't have relationships. He was displaced. So because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because of what he's done, as because of his work on our behalf, however you see that fitting in the parable, that's definitely true. He does this work. He paid a debt I could not pay. He took care of that. What does that then mean about how I live life? I don't live life any longer as an indebted person. I am set free from that. And that starts to snowball into every single area of my life. Second kind of thing to think about principle-wise is we look at stewardship. Stewardship, uh, it's obvious in area. The Bible talks a lot about money, but it's not just a moral story about here's how to balance your checkbook better. Here's how to be a better manager. It's more of saying, how does this bring us back to Jesus as Savior, back to Jesus as Lord, back to Jesus as guide, who can help us and shape us as we think through how do we steward his money, right? How do we steward his money? Because it's his money. He's just put it in your particular bank account at the current thing or possessions or all that. How do you steward that that way? And then lastly, if you don't get at least <laughs> that the Pharisees are that close, that close to standing with the Messiah and the Savior, and they miss it. The reason they miss it is because of religion. 
The reason they miss it is because of their, I can be okay on my own. I don't need a savior. We call that legalism. If that doesn't terrify, it terrifies me every day because that's, I slip into that all the time. That's what I naturally become. Jerry Bridges has said, we're all natural born legalists. Every morning we wake up and think we're going to do it. We're going to prove to ourselves and to others and to God that I am worthy. And it's like, no, the whole point of the message is I'm not worthy and he is. And I want to live in light of that, not the other way around. Does that not terrify you? And I hope that this pair, these Pharisees now, after two major things, still see themselves as the good guy in the story. They're not the good guy in the story. And we don't need to be the good guy in the story either because of what Jesus did. We're going to move now to a time of reflection and, and response. And so I invite the worship team to come on back up. And uh, during this time, I put the questions up here just right now so you could Maybe let those mull a little bit in you as we looked at God's word this morning. I hope that will kind of work in your heart, whatever the Lord, by the power of his Holy Spirit's uh, speaking to you uh, today. Uh, we're going to kind of respond in, in, in four different ways, one of which is just singing. And uh, I've been around Hope long enough. I don't know the songs Jordan's going to sing, but I'm pretty sure most of these songs are like prayers. They are ways that we respond to the gospel. So use them that way. Don't just sing the songs, but sing them in light of response and response uh, to God. Uh, second way is out in the back. And if you're brand new here, we have to do it outside because of the restrictions here. We have to have food and drink outside. So outside here, there's communion. And communion's an opportunity for us to proclaim that we come with nothing and we are takers of what Jesus Christ has done for us. His body represented by the bread and, his, and the, the, the cup uh, represents his, his blood that was shed for us. We come and we take that. We practice open communion at all of our locations. You do not need to be a member of any church, including this one, to take communion. We would just ask that you are a follower of Jesus. And if you're not yet this morning, why not? Why not make this day the day of the confusing parable, the day that you give your life to Jesus and say, Jesus, I need you as Savior and Lord. I take you. And then take, go take your first real communion. Also, uh, if you want to give, we can do that. There, or do you have physical boxes here? And there's a physical box somewhere in the back, or obviously you can do that uh, online. And then there'll be people who would love to pray for you. I believe they're out by the exit signs back there, right? To the Both sides. Yep, so they're back there, and you could just go. If you want to seek prayer on anything, they'd love to do that with you. Let's pray as we enter into a time of response. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you now for in my own personal journey with you, 40 years of, of studying and reading and meditating and hearing your word. And, uh, and Lord, I thank you at times just for the humility of saying, not sure. And yet there's still things we can glean. There's still things that you can do in our lives if we, even if we don't see it entirely. And so, Lord God, do that in our midst. Humble us, encourage us, make us be people of the gospel. Make us be people who are shrewd in the way we act with our possessions so that we love on people with a radical, eye-popping love and generosity. But we do that because of who we are in Christ, not to try to earn anything. So Lord, I pray for every single person here. I, have, I don't know what a lot of people brought in. 
I pray, God, by the power of your spirit that you'd move even in this room. And during these last three songs, you'd meet with people, you'd minister to them, you'd show them, you'd show them what they need. We thank you, Lord, and love you today. In Jesus' name.